Hello, and welcome to The Amazing Execs Show. I'm your host, David Rosen. This is our new series around customer and market centricity. I hope you enjoy the program today and the discussion I had with Mike Bosworth, one of the legends of sales training methodologies who wrote the books on solution selling, customer-centric selling, and his pinnacle in storytelling. What you hear today is something quite interesting that I wouldn't have expected. Mike is a consummate salesperson, but doesn't represent what we all think of as a traditional salesperson. Mike actually is a technical guy who refused to take a first opportunity in sales because he thought that was something he would never want to do. Listen in. And when they came to me and said, Mike, we want you to go into sales, I had two answers, no and hell no. The first no came because of the last two years, I've been cleaning up messes made by salespeople who were lying about price and creating expectations that our product would do stuff that it wouldn't do. And most of those expectations, I mean, it was the company's fault because we never taught those salespeople how to control the application, the expectation level when you're selling a new paradigm busting way of operating your business. But the buyers that get excited and say to the sales rep, David, will it do ABC? And the sales rep can say, oh yeah, no problem. It'll do that. Well, somebody then had to go install those systems and well, it doesn't quite do that, you know, and manage that whole mess. So one, I had a disrespect for the profession. Two, my violent alcoholic father was a salesman and he never kept a job longer than three months. And the last thing I ever wanted to do was to be a salesman. We talked through his progression from solution selling, focusing around pain and what we used to call fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or selling through FUD, but also more importantly, the discovery process that's important to be able to understand fighting buyer resistance. And finally, his pinnacle, which has been part of his methodology from the beginning, was focused around storytelling. I look forward to your feedback and please hit subscribe below in the box. And we look forward to any feedback or comments and any suggestions that you have. Thank you. Acrylic Group welcomes you to the Amazing Execs Show, where business leaders learn from other leaders. Join us, along with your host, David Rosen, the CEO of Acrylic Group. We discover and dive into stories from executives, founders, and owners and what separates them from success and failure. Hear and see amazing leaders from startups, middle market, and global leading companies. Now, kick back and enjoy watching our videocast or listening to our podcast. The choice of media is all yours. Come take this amazing journey with us and learn how great people do the thing they do. Hello, Michael. How are you today? If I were any better, I'd have to be twins, David. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Welcome to the Amazing Exec Show, and thank you for being here. It's really great to chat with you and talk with you and to share some insights for our audience of owners and executives and board members of middle market and growing companies. Mike, I've known you for 20 years, and I was so excited <laughs> when I first met you 
I, I sh maybe I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> I was so I was excited. Much handsomer then. <laughs> when I first met you, I had always considered you to be one of the top sales and marketing gods in the world, and what I consider to be one of the top five global pioneers. So, as I was starting my sales lead and qualification management software company, Acrylic, it was great to chat with you and to synchronize. But what was going on with sales at the time? You started with the foundational sales lessons and starting point of pain-based selling that really took off. And that was from your first book, Solution Selling. You followed that up with customer-centric selling, which provided kind of goal-based selling. Yep. And also you've been advising companies on the methodologies and approaches that you've put into those books. In addition to, I guess, a third book, What Great Salespeople Do, and all of which have greatly increased the effectiveness and productive and the productivity of sales approaches still used today. And you also pioneered storytelling early on, I guess, in 2013 as an aspect of sales to make stronger connections with prospects. I started that in 2008. 2000. Okay, so you yeah. were truly ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, I have to ask... So what's your story? <laughs> so where did you start from and how, and where are you today? The original vision for solution selling was to try to gain some control around the expectation levels that salespeople were creating back in the 70s, selling first-generation cloud-based applications for Xerox computer services. And I was on the service side for two and a half years. When they hired me, I was right out of college. They put me on the help desk. Then I had a year out as a on-site application support rep. And then they made me a farmer for six months, which meant I had to go out and say, David, I know you signed up for 1200 a month a year ago with the salesman who told you how much that was going to cost. And today you're paying 3000 a month. And I know you're pretty unhappy with that, but let's talk about it. And then after six months of that, they put me on new account sales. And when they came to me and said, Mike, we want you to go into sales, I had two answers, no and hell no. The first no came because for the last two years, I've been cleaning up messes made by salespeople who were lying about price and creating expectations that our product would do stuff that it wouldn't do. And... Most of those expectations, it was the company's fault because we never taught those salespeople how to control the application, the expectation level when you're selling a new paradigm busting way of operating your business. And back then, buyers would get excited and say to the sales rep, David, will it do ABC? And the sales rep would say, oh, yeah, no problem. It'll do that. Well, Somebody then had to go install those systems and say, it doesn't quite do that and, and manage that whole mess. One, I had a disrespect for the profession. Two, my violent alcoholic father was a salesman and he never kept a job longer than three months. And the last thing I ever wanted to do was to be a salesman. Wow. So I can said, relate to that, Mike. I never wanted to be a salesman 
But then somewhere in my middle 20s, I started realizing that I was a great salesman and that it had a different view than the the striped pants and plaid jacket yeah. view that I had in my head. <laughs> At the age of 28, they came back to me a week later after I turned them down. They said, Mike, we understand we want to reduce your risk. So how about we put it in writing that you try sales for six months, you can keep your techie salary, and at the end of six months, if you hate it, you can have your techie job back. I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. And the only thing I didn't know how to do is cold call. I knew from two and a half years who was working with that product, whatever department you were in, material control, production control, inventory, accounting, billing, et cetera, I knew how I could lead you to a vision that you could do your job much better if you had my product than the way you're doing it today. What I didn't know though is how to find people to talk to about that. And my boss, he took me out smokestacking. Back then, cold calling was walking into a lobby, going up to the receptionist and saying, hi, my name is Mike Bosworth and I'm with Xerox Computer Services and I'd like to speak with your materials manager. I was 28 years old. Back then, all the receptionists were female and all the materials managers were male. So I'm not trying to get out of hand with my pronouns here. <laughs> and uh, she would pick the phone up and say, hang on. She'd call the materials manager and say, I got this guy from Xerox out here and he wants to talk to our materials manager. And 80% of the time he'd come up. If you it, think did about they have, it. Did they get attention from Anyone in your industry before that? No, never. They've never had a salesman even asked to see him. One, so they're curious. And two, right. back then, if you were a 48-year-old manufacturing executive, how much did you know about new technology coming out through the IT industry? Not much. The only way you could learn that is by seeing salespeople. So if IBM or Honeywell or Univac or Xerox, if they call, the curiosity level is pretty high just because they figured that they could learn something about technology that applied to their job. So the materials manager would come out 80% of the time and they'd walk up to me and the first thing they'd do is they'd look at their wife. <laughs> so right. what do you think just happened? He's 48, <laughs> he sees this kid who's 28 and he goes, Oh, shit. Now I have to be polite to this kid for 15 minutes before I can give him the boot. Because what could right. he possibly know about manufacturing? So I did this intuitively, and I didn't really figure it out where I could teach it until 2008. But what right. I did in 1974 intuitively, and most great salespeople are intuitive, they don't follow a model. Really important, really good point about being intuitive. So my intuition said, because I knew that product so well, he'd come, I'd confirm, I'd say, you're the materials manager here? And he'd say, yes. And I'd say, can I share a quick story with you about another materials manager less than a mile from here that I've been working with for the last 18 months? Never once did that offer of a story get turned down, ever. Think about why. People are curious about their peers. People in the business world, if you're a CFO, you want to know what other CFOs are doing. And if you're a materials manager, you want to know 
what your peers are doing. So pure curiosity in the first 10 seconds, he said, yes. Now he's granted me 60 seconds of story time. Now, all intuitive, I said, I met Ed Blackman 18 months ago, and he works for Alpac Electronics, and he's now the new president of the local Apex chapter. When I met Ed 18 months ago, he was under a lot of stress. He was working about 55 hours a week. Every day he'd come in, his CFO was furious at him because he was carrying too much inventory. His VP of manufacturing was furious at him because of the past few backlog. And they're all pointing the finger at him because he's not managing this inventory of 50-some thousand parts. Right. And 18 months ago, when Ed Blackman found out that Xerox Computer Services has now created a system that will replan his entire plant overnight. He said he volunteered to be first. We had no existing customers. We were first to market. He was the first person we offered it to. He said, I'll be your guinea pig. And here we are 18 months later. His inventory 18 months ago was 8 million. Now it's 2.7 million. And his past due backlog 18 months ago was 28%. Now it's 3%. But enough about me. What's going on here? <laughs> right. One minute story. And you know what they invariably said? Do you want to come in and look around? So that one story led him to the emotional conclusion that even though this guy's 20 years younger than me, it sounds like he understands how hard my job is. And it sounds like he has helped one of my peers already solve the biggest problem he's got in front of him. And he seems authentic. He's not using a bunch of, I guarantee you this, or I'll save you that. And uh, so I want to know more. And all the other salespeople that at Xerox Computer Services at the time that were my competitors, if you will, they were all former IBMers, mid-30s to mid-40s. And the only thing we trained them to do in their first six weeks with the company is give demos. Right. And so they'd go up in the same thing where I said, can I share a story with you? They said, can I give you a demonstration of our MRP system? So this is all intuitive. And so in my first five months on quota, I've sold more than anybody in the history of the company had sold in a full year. And wow. it transformed my life. I had a poor upbringing, never went to the dentist, never had any money. My mother died of stress when I was 18. My father took off. Terrible upbringing. When I was 18 years old, first week of junior college, I dropped out of speech class because I was in the bathroom throwing up. <laughs> and then Too nervous. It, took, yeah. it took me 10 years to overcome that. But at 28, once Xerox Computer Services said, they brought Mike Bosworth up in the stage and said, this guy just sold more in the first five months than any of you guys have sold in a full year. And they wanted me to try and tell them what I did. Now it was all intuitive, so I didn't do a very good job of explaining it to them. But because of that, they moved me to New Jersey to be a sales manager. And eventually I became the branch of the year in Philly. And then they 
asked me to start doing all the sales training for Xerox Computer Services. So five to six weeks a year, starting in 76, I was an internal sales trainer, did all the new sales rep boot camps. And I invented the framework for discovery in the solution selling book in those classes. And I played with them as they were my lab rats. I know I'm asking you to go into the Wayback Machine, but what were the first indications that there could be a solution here and a problem on the material side? What got you questioning that or looking at a business from that angle? I have to confess, David, that Xerox Computer Services hired people who knew a thousand times more about manufacturing than my father. They designed and built an amazing product. And all I had to do was figure out, David, how do you do business without my product? And what would you be able to do if you had it? That's what I needed to learn as a salesperson. And I needed to be able to communicate it in the best way to get buyers emotionally excited to go through a buy cycle was by storytelling and right. telling stories of their peers. So they said yes to the peer story. Can I share a story with you about another materials manager? One minute later, the pure curiosity evolved to pure envy. Because now he's right. envious of one of his peers who's already conquered the shortage problem. Do you want to come in? And now he came in to allow me to do all the discovery I wanted. And I did really good discovery because I knew the product. So in inventing solution selling, it was intelligent discovery. I integrated in a nine box saying questioning etiquette on one plane and knowledge on another plane. So the questioning etiquette is you first ask an open question before you go to control close end questions and then confirm, you confirm what you just learned. And then we said, we first take the product problem from the materials manager's point of view. And then we say, all right, Ed Blackman, I think I understand the problem from your point of view. Who else in your organization is impacted by your shortage problem? And he'd go into the CFO and the CMO and the order desk. And so we'd spread the problem around and then what will it take for you to be able to solve this problem? And we had, what if you were able to questions written by the smartest people in the company? We don't want salespeople making up their own. What if you were able to questions? Right. That's a disaster. So it really, if I have to pat myself on the back, it was brilliant. And we should have called it solution discovery instead of solution selling. I really misnamed it yeah problem, well, what's though, go ahead and i tell you the problem i probably had 20 CROs, cso vp of sales clients of mine six months after they start after they'd had me train their troops they say mike my top 20 percent love solution selling but the bottom 80% quit using it within two weeks of the workshop. 
And they stayed the bottom 80%. (laughs) They stayed the bottom 80%. And what the difference was, again, if you really go to pretty much any sales force, those top 20%, they're doing it intuitively. They've got magic and it works for them. But boy, when they get promoted to sales manager, they don't know how to spread that magic around because how do you teach somebody else to do what you did intuitively? Can't do it. I spent 40 years trying to codify and explain with stories and metaphors and steps how to teach what I did intuitively. That's interesting. I'm going to take a twist with you, Mike. I'm an angel investor, so I get pitched a lot to look at companies, and I have a specific investment thesis around software connected to physical products, but I still see a lot of software companies because that's my mainstay. Yeah. One of the greatest challenges I see is teams are extremely ineffective about describing the pain or the problems and the economic value that their product or company brings to the market. It seems like recently there's been a lot of like custom software developers that are very good about discovery and listening to one company's problem and providing a solution to that one problem and getting agreement on that solution. But really, when it comes to creating a market, you have to be able to change your thinking and say, there's 5,000 people like this one I just described To your point, here's the story of what they were able to do with this solution. And I can easily identify by just some quick research or a quick couple of conversations. Is there a good place for better sales coaching in the venture world and helping startups be more articulate about what it is that they do for what markets? The guy who taught me about startups and Coming into a market and creating a market was Jeffrey Moore. If you remember, it's Crossing the Chasm book. Yeah, yeah, Well, what typically happens is really great startup companies have a technical genius, could be an engineer, a software chemist. They've got a CFO that knows what he's doing, and then they got a sales and marketing guy. You need those three pieces. In my, if I see a company that's missing one of those pieces, I'm probably not going to want to invest. And so they create the better mousetrap. And then what happens is they get a few industry gurus to write white papers about this new exciting thing. And then they go to trade shows and they start demoing this new technology. And statistically, if you look at the whole market, the innovators and the and early adopters are 13% typically of the whole market. Right. And the 13% look at that new technology and they are able to create their own buying vision. They look at it and they say, son of a bitch, I've been waiting for somebody to come along and do this. And they buy it. Problem is the software or technology vendor, they're happy to take the order. They bought off a demo but they have no real idea of that person's buying vision or what they say to themselves, why I need now I'm going to use this. And the best example of the chasm you bet. was there's a company called Microsoft 
And back in the early 90s, they came out with something called Microsoft Office. And Microsoft came to me when they hit the chasm. Because when they first put Office out there, people were, they couldn't buy it fast enough. But then all of a sudden, they ran out of buyers who, on their own, could look at Microsoft Office and, and say how they were going to use it in their company. They only bought on the technology and the demo or whatever. So they hired me and my team at Solution Selling to go out and interview Microsoft's early market office clients. There were construction companies and dental offices and retail. Right. And we went in and we'd say something like, uh, David, I'm here because Microsoft has hired me to go out and kind of survey and figure out how their customers are using Microsoft Office. Would you spend a few minutes and show me how you're using Office in your business? In other words, show me how you're using it first. And they say, oh, look at this. We never knew the profitability of our jobs before. Now we know the profitability of our job. And, and so they're very enthusiastic. And then here's the real question. I said, before you had Microsoft Office, how did you figure out the profitability of those jobs? And they go, oh, spreadsheets and three-week closings. And they go through all the old way. And now I had, a, and I said, and what results do you have? And they'd say, gee, now we know our, we close our books three days after the end of the month and da, 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 da. And so now I have a story. And so we went back and we wrote stories for construction companies and dental offices and stuff about how they used to do it before they had Microsoft Office and why it was so cumbersome and what stories created the vision of the solution. So now they can sell to the early market who don't know why they need it or how they're going to use it. And right. boy, if you can get early stage companies to think out beyond the chasm, because they will hit the chasm, they will run out of innovators and early adopters who easily see how they can use that stuff. Right. Right. And <laughs> I was just Again, talking about that today with perspective investment and you and I are both aligned in the fact that you've got to be intimate with your customers and you have to understand what they do every day and how they're compensated and what risk profile do they have or how, what's their, what is their personal risk profile and what is it that's going to be a no-brainer in their mind that's really a solution to solve and then you can say, oh, I know that I can find 15,000 other people with this same profile that looks like a duck. <laughs> it, it's not that complicated, but here's the rub. I'll bet you more than 50% of those new better mousetraps were a solution working for a problem where the technologists, and they just want to make cool stuff. So they make cool stuff and then they go looking for problems to solve with it. And those are difficult too. If a company's really a solution looking for a problem, I'd let other people invest in them as angels. And if they make it to the next stage, then go back. But ooh, risky, I think. Yeah. Between you and I, this company was focusing on the fact that the team had been brought together once before and provided a solution to a couple of major companies. And to me, that doesn't give them credibility that they can build a product business that that approaches a larger market than just 
a custom software development shop. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and to your point, it's uh, it's the technologists in search of a market. And, and uh, that's what happens pre-chasm. But boy, and that's why they write the white papers and hire some people to say, what do you think? And get out and demo at trade shows. And that's where you find the innovators and early adopters. That's right. And I, I don't know if you remember, but even in Acrylic with Warp Sales, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% of our customers never saw a live demo before they were trained on the software and bought it. Right. Because yeah, at that time, in, in the 2000s, early 2000s, you had to be really careful because you had no idea what firewalls were going to get in the way. You had no idea what speed internet access people had, and you just didn't want to do a real live so demo. so many things that could go wrong. <laughs> and back when I was selling first-generation MRP, I never right. did a demo. I took him to Ed Blackman's every Tuesday morning. He reserved his conference room from 10 a.m. to 12 for Mike Bosler's prospects. Wow. I'd go out and create the vision, do the discovery, and then I'd bring him to Ed Blackman's the next week, and he'd show them, here's a piece of paper I do use it as this, and here's the way I used to do it. That's why I sold so much in my first five months on quota, because right. he was the proof. I was able to create the vision, get him and test me enough to share the problem, create the vision, but any smart fit buyer buying something that's new, first to market, they need proof. You can't assume that they don't need proof because they do. That, that's exactly right. Interesting. Good point. So let's switch gears a little bit. You've built several companies that I know of. So your original solution selling was based upon pain. And then you realize that there's a greater good there and a greater approach, especially for young salespeople trying to reach out to people for the first time by focusing more on the goals in addition to the pain. And then you got involved in the storytelling. So t tell me about how you built those companies and about those experiences and the progression and what you learned as an executive or as a, an owner founder of those companies. And secret sauce in those. With solution selling, the whole thing was intelligent discovery. And people bought it and they loved it, but the bottom 80% quit using it. Solution selling was designed around my experience selling information technology to the enterprise. But soon other enterprises like the tech, the telecommunications industry wanted to try solution selling. And that's where we ran into a problem because as a psychologist in the 70s and 80s said, it takes a minimum 120 IQ to be able to sell integrated systems to the enterprise. Systems that are impacting finance and production and IT. Integrated 120 IQ. And hmm. The nine boxes was designed for that. When we get into telecommunications companies, the average IQ is about body temperature of the salespeople. <laughs> and so the original nine boxes was too complicated for them to do in real time. They didn't have the horsepower. So customer-centric selling, a couple of things. One, it's a lot easier to get a stranger to share a goal with you than a pain with you. It takes a much more trust to admit pain to a salesperson 
and a goal. Sales person says, would you like to improve your sales productivity per sales Oh yeah, I'd love to do that. That's easy. But right. are your salespeople struggling because you failed to give them this and this before they went out on the call? That's a big pain to share. It takes a different level of trust. So right. we were trying still to help the bottom 80%. The mission of solution selling, customer-centric selling, the top 20% are doing great. They don't need us. The real pot of gold for sales productivity improvement is if you get the bottom 80% lifted. That's where the real productivity improvement money is. And Raise so the average instead of diluting the average. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so customer centric selling was basically brought down, took away the whole impl impl implication part of the model, just made it problems and goals and potential solutions and simplified it. Right. But same thing with customer centric selling six months later, Mike, my top 20% love customer centric selling. The bottom 80% quit using it within two weeks of the workshop. And it wasn't until 2008 that I finally figured out that the missing link, because it's not just the bottom 80% of salespeople, David, the bottom 80% of humanity struggles with emotionally connecting and building trust with strangers. Good point. All professions. Very good point. Yeah, it's just a human nature thing. And so my challenge was, what can I come up with as a methodology to teach the bottom 80% how to emotionally connect and build trust with a stranger before they take out their discovery prompters? And I, if you go on the storyseekers.us website, I've got an article out there called Discovery Resistance. And Discovery Resistance is the number one problem salespeople face. And it's not their fault. It's kind of like original sin in the Catholic Church. If you're in sales, the vast majority of people out there at the beginning will not trust you because you're a salesperson because they've all had unpleasant experiences with other salespeople. So to overcome discovery resistance with a stranger when you're in the bottom 80%, that's what I'm doing today. With story seekers, we're teaching salespeople who don't do it intuitively. And we get a lot of geeky people, IT geeky people, financial planners, yep. engineers, People who just aren't wired to be extroverts or connecting people, but they're really honest. They have high character. They want to help solve problems, but they don't have the people skills to build the connection and trust first. So with the story seekers model, that's what we're doing is we're giving those people something they can do that breaks down the discovery resistance because once they are allowed to do intelligent discovery, they do a great job. Where do you focus story seekers? Are there specific vertical markets that are more accepting of this approach? Or is it really truly something that you can peanut butter 
across every industry and find the right stories to be able to build trust and rapport? Or I guess another way to phrase it is, are there some industries where you don't need to build trust and rapport because you're so product focused, they don't want to hear the stories? (laughs) If you're in an industry where they can buy your product without a salesman, if you think about it, how many things can you just go buy on the internet where you never talk to a salesperson at all? You know what you need, why you need it, and you look at your alternatives and you buy it. You didn't need a salesperson. So right. if you think about it in today's world, when do you need a salesperson? You need a salesperson when you're selling something new, paradigm shifting, or most of your market don't know why they need it or how they're going to use it. That's where, you, that's where you need salespeople. And those are the great sales jobs. And that's why people who can play in that sandbox make a lot of money. Yeah, good point. But there is a product distribution life cycle, right? Where the first buyers and the innovators buy something custom, spend a lot of money on it, and then it starts getting more commoditized. The flip side, though, is that you may not need a salesperson to educate you on the product because you know what you want. But today in this world, you really need to verify whether you can trust the distributor or the sales organization that you're not going to get a gray market product or you're not going to get an inferior product that's been switched or that you're going to get good customer service. So I think there's a point where when everybody rushes into the market, a lot of quality goes down because a lot of people are playing in the market without really knowing what it takes to be a supplier. (laughs) And that's why we believe that each salesperson needs three different distinct stories. They need stories, we call them customer hero stories. Like I told my the uh, managers that I cold called my Ed Blackman customer hero story. Ed Blackman is a hero at his company because the inventory used to be 8 million and now it's 2.7. Right. So you've got to have a customer hero story from your tactical marketing department who should be doing the research. And you shouldn't be going out writing your own stories. Your tactical marketing department ought to be out harvesting customer hero stories, just like Microsoft hired me to harvest customer hero stories around Microsoft Office. Right. So each salesperson needs one or more customer hero stories, depending on the number of buyer personas and markets. They need one, who am I and why I do what I do story? Because somewhere in a long sales cycle, the buyer's going to want to know about your own character and they're going to want to know that when things go wrong, you keep a cool head and you right. fall into a pothole and you get back up. And your own personal character and resilience and authenticity. And this still has to be a one-minute story that leads the buyer to that conclusion. And that's usually in the middle of the buy cycle. And then when companies really start looking at the dollar amount, they think, who is this organization? Do they really keep their promises? Do they really take care of their customers? And the third story is the who I work for and why I joined them story. Because the buyer is going to want to know at a particular point in the buy cycle, just like you said, 
do these guys really keep their promises? Do they back up their product? Do they have character as an organization? So they want to know that their salesperson has character and they want to know that their salesperson's company has character. So customer hero stories, personal stories, and company stories. And those have to be honed, written, wordsmithed, and practiced. And they have to be conversational. They can't be written up. Problem is you can go to a lot of websites and see all these elaborate case studies and success stories. With salespeople, we have a system where the green card is the setting, the white card is the struggle, the complication, the blue card is the vision of a solution. The red card is the results. The inventory used to be 8 million, now it's 2.7. And the yellow card is the moral of the story, optional. But in the moral of my story was, yes, it's really possible to completely replan a manufacturing company that's managing 50,000 parts overnight. Right. But they have to be conversational and they shouldn't be practicing these stories on prospects. They should be pro practicing with their managers and with their peers because selling like this, it's not an academic subject. Right. It's a skill. <laughs> it's, it's just right. like learning to drive a stick shift car when you're 16. You can't learn that from a video or a book. You've got to get out there and do the clutch and the pedal and you know, you got to do it and selling is a skill and they have to practice it. And the problem with the sales profession, it's the only highly paid profession I know where the professionals hate to practice. They avoid practice. They'll do anything to avoid it. If you're a professional right. golfer, you practice. If you're a professional tennis player, you practice. If you're a lawyer, you practice your closing. You don't practice on the jury, right? right. You practice. And Salespeople have poor practice. I think their nature in going into sales is I'm going into sales because it's so unaccountable. As long as I make my number, they'll leave me alone. Wow. Good point. Mike, you've been a great thought leader that have impacted organizations tremendously at a high level and at a very tactical and personal level. And I've been lucky in my life and I've been involved in changing organizations of startups of five to 10 to 20 people, but also tens of thousands of very technical engineers yeah. to get them to think and behave differently. Yep. Can you talk about some of the most interesting transformations, either incremental or holistic that your clients have achieved with your support and help? Can you talk about what kind of companies they were and what you did to advise and support them? The vast majority are selling something conceptual, intangible, perceived as expensive, perceived as being difficult, sold to a committee of risk-averse people. <laughs> so it's Talk about high, the worst situation possible. High difficulty selling. And right. one of the things that happens in the technology world is salespeople, they typically have very long periods from day to hire till when they're finally fully productive nine to 12, 15 months, right? right? So that time to solution expertise is very painful because they weren't trained properly. That could be dramatically shrunk. 
But there comes a point when the salesperson finally has what I call solution expertise. It's like a doctor has solution expertise. They ask you two or three questions about, you know, what's going on with you. And they, in their mind, they go, here's what the problem is. They jump to a solution. When salespeople are at that point, all of a sudden their performance goes up, up. And when they hit that, they hit a chasm in performance because they hear four words out of the prospect's mouth about their problem. They go, oh, David, we see this all the time. This is out of whack, right? This is out of whack. I bet you're having a problem here too. Here's what you need. You need our dot-to-dot proven solution. And they are what I call prematurely elaborating. Their enthusiasm plus their expertise become their enemy because human beings don't like to be told what they need to do. And so when they hit the, here's what you need point, the performance goes down. So what I teach them, I said, first, in order to show you that this is a problem, how many of you are in a long-term romantic relationship? And most of the audience raise their hands. I said, on the next break, call your significant other, get he or she on the phone and try two to three, you need to statements on them. See how they respond. <laughs> or I'll even say, you can smooth it out a little bit by going, honey, comma you need to. Right. And they laugh and they say, that's not going to fly in my house at all. And I said, if the person who loves you the most won't take it from you, why would your customer or your prospect? Right. So we've got to slow them down and get them diagnosing before they prescribe. But you can't diagnose, you can't do discovery until you first remove their discovery resistance. Right. Do you quantify the impact that you have on these sales forces so that if they're able to get 5% higher productivity, that they've raised their level of sales average by a half a billion dollars or something in the organization? You know how I hate spreadsheets and numbers and stuff like that. (laughs) It's basically the way I typically cost justified the ROI of the training I do. I'll say to a prospect, what's your you know, your median sales price, and it goes 50,000, 100, 200,000 or whatever. I said, what if after going through three days of training, each of your reps sell one extra $100,000 product? How you doing? And they do the math and it's done. Right. Because they're always doing the math. And when you're, and when you're impacting the top line instead of the bottom line, it's a lot easier to sell. When you're selling cost savings, that's pushing boulders uphill. But when you're selling top line improvement, that's fun because once they get it, then they're behind it. Very interesting. And so Mike, one of the things that is really critical And one of the reasons why I depend upon people who have very strong people skills is that when I found you're going through transformation, and I'm assuming that you deal with sales forces and marketing teams that are fairly large and significant, the thing that separates success from failure the most are the people issues, more than any smart business process or rationale or logic. Ideally, you'd love to see this yin and yang where the 
The people and business issues are both the same size, but the reality is the people issues far overhang <laughs> the business yeah. issues. Can you talk about that in terms of your experience of getting people to change their behavior and to make change successful? Absolutely. However, let me tell you a story of a workshop and I call it, what did I call it? Accidental team building. Okay. Okay. So one of my network companies wanted me, this is like six, seven years ago. They wanted me to go to the UK and put on a workshop for 36 people. And normally my workshops at a minimum of 16, maximum of 32, because I found that more than 32 people in the same workshop, the learning starts to go down. But they right. said, Mike, you're going all the way from the West Coast to the UK. We need you to do 36. Now, the reason it's not an easy decision for me is we do a lot of small group role playing. We lecture to the main tent and then we break them up into Zoom rooms or real rooms where they have to practice that customer hero story and practice that who am I story telling and tending. And so I need a coach for every four attendees. So this ended up being a bigger ring than I like at 36 at the U. And I had nine coaches at the back table, all who I trained to coach. Then I realized it's even more difficult because of the 36 people in the room, most of them English was not their first language. The only oh, people boy. in the room where English was their first language are the people from the UK. But we had them from Poland and Holland and Germany and Spain and Yugoslavia. The class, if I'm teaching that the class is in English, but they're learning it in a second language. Second problem, and this was even bigger, is of the 36 people, they had just done a merger acquisition. And nine of them came from Acquirey A, nine of them came from Acquirey B, nine of them came from Acquisition C, nine of them came from Acquisition D, and they all competed with each other and hated each other's guts. <laughs> right. This is the most difficult situation I'd ever come up as a sales trainer. But a couple of divine things happened. First divine thing, second day, the normal small group role play is where they build and tell a customer hero story. But I realized that my client didn't want them all telling stories about the company they used to work for, right? right? So what we did, is we broke them up into groups or each group of four had one from company A, one from company B, one from company C, and one from company D. And we said, all right, it's a year from now, you get to come up with a fantasy prospect and a fantasy solution as long as it comes from one of these four companies. And they created future stories. And not only were the stories brilliant, but the way they started working together as teams, integrating the best of each of the four of them into a new story, it was amazing, okay? And then that night, typically their homework assignment, because we're teaching them to tend the story of the buyer too. And so we said, 
Oh, and back then we had them captive because we were in the country in the UK. So we ended the class at five. They had personal time until eight. And at 8 p.m. that night, we had a group dinner where all of them were in the same dining room. So I said, between now five o'clock and when we reconvene, I want each of you to call your significant other or someone you love. Hmm. can be a child, a grandparent, someone you love and take 30 minutes and tend their story. So it might be, Dad, tell me the story again of when you first met Mom and how your woman went. Or say to your kid, what's it like being in the fourth grade at that school or whatever? And tend their story for 30 minutes and then feed it back to them at 60 and say, let me see if I got your story. And then look them in the eye and say, did I get you? And then we said, tonight, when you come to dinner, you are all going to sit at the same table with the people that you did the group product future story with and the same coach. And you're going to share what your loved one's reaction to the tending was among yourselves as you eat dinner. And at quarter to 10, the management of the place said, you got to get these people out of here. We need them to be out by 10. We need to clean the room. And they didn't want to leave. And the VP of HR was one of my coaches. And she said to me, I've never seen a team building experience like that in my entire career. And you did it on the fly. <laughs> on the fly. I've always, I do it intuitively first and then I codify right. it. So now we codify it. Awesome. So you've had a lot of great successes. So what do you think, and I'm assuming that your clients are typically the presidents of business units or the CEOs of companies or the head of sales or chief sales officer or chief marketing officer. From your perspective and working across a variety of really very successful leading companies, what, are you, what do you think the most important attributes of a successful leader are? that you see? Authenticity and vulnerability. Because as a leader, in order to really create trust between a leader and a subordinate, we find that the leader needs to be vulnerable first so the employee has the emotional confidence that they can be vulnerable as well. And it's the principle of emotional reciprocity. And I'll tell you my emotional reciprocity story, which I built into the business. Years ago, one of my mentors at Xerox Computer Services was a guy named Bob Populorum, who's now deceased. He was quite a bit older than me, but he went to Northwestern and he was a psychology major. And he was always experimenting. The hardest thing in selling is connecting with strangers, right? right? And teaching people to connect with strangers, especially if it's not their personality to connect with strangers. And so he would do experiments with people coming together. And he had five kids. And so he was always going to some back to school night or some fundraiser for one of the schools. And multiple times a year, he'd find himself in a banquet room full of other parents. So the only thing everybody has in common is they have a kid at this school. And so he'd go around and he'd just 
listen at first. And they were having who's got the coolest kid contest. One says, mine's going to call you the cross at Johns Hopkins. Mine got into medical school. Mine's got a you know, trip abroad that they were bragging about their kids. And so after a little of that, Bob would go up. And he was a pretty meek-looking guy. He was—he had bad, his hair looked like a toupee, even though it wasn't. He was not <laughs> an imposing guy. And he'd go up, and his mouth was naturally in a sad state. He'd go up and say, my name's Bob, and I've got five kids, one of each. And to see if they had a sense of humor. And, <laughs> then he'd, and then he'd say, my first four were doing great. The two were out of college, they got great entry-level jobs, two were still in school, one's playing volleyball, one's on debate team. But my number five is breaking my heart. She got picked up for shoplifting last Saturday, and I think I'm going to have to send her to rehab. Now, he's making this stuff up. How do you think the other parent responded? Right, go, in a more empathetic way. I got way. one of those, too. Everybody's yeah. got one of those, but they yeah. weren't going to talk about it until somebody else went first. So the rule, the Mike Bosner's rule on really t teaching people to connect is vulnerability. It's hugely powerful. And if you're in sales, you have to go first. And if you're in leadership, you have to go first. Your buyer is going to be a lot more comfortable sharing pain with you if you're vulnerable as a human being first and your employee is going to be a lot more willing to share their difficulty and their pain with you if you went vulnerable first. So that's my monumental human discovery since 2008 when I've really been focusing on connecting and building trust instead of creating visions. Interesting. So if we can turn it upside down, you've had a lot of great successes, but what are the traits or characteristics of those business leaders who aren't successful? What are their attributes that, that caused them to fail to achieve the change or transformation that they were trying to create? The number one problem is that the CEO doesn't manage the silos. He allows them to be political and just fight with each other and stuff. And in order to break down silos, if we're going to have a team building thing to break down silos, the CEO has to be behind it because people in their silos want to protect their power base and their knowledge base. And yeah. they, they're just too human. And so it's, right. it comes from the top. That's, because breaking down silos is the key to having companies that are fun to work for and that they're united in all wanting to take care of the customer, no matter when it's a company where you've gotten the silos broken down, anybody is going to pick up the phone and help. If I'm a salesperson and I call billing and I say, oh, they're really frustrated with their bill and somebody help me, somebody jumps on it. Anybody who can help keep the customer thriving and happy in the company, regardless of title. And the only way you do that is with team building and breaking down silos. That's the only way. Right. And collaboration and balance. Any other characteristics that can point to potential failure of transformation or change and trying to get 
achieve new goals with your teams and people? Transformation and change requires that people leave their comfort zones and get on in their learning zone and try something new enough times to turn it into a habit. Right. And the only way they're going to motivate all the middle managers, the only way they're going to be motivated to do that is that the expectation from the C-level suite is we're an integrated company. We don't have silos anymore. We're all on the same team. And if they're not measured and held accountable for it, they'll stay in their comfort zones. And interesting. So what if I, <laughs> just a little quirky point that, I don't know why it sticks in the back of my mind as something that's just totally wrong. But what if I told you that there was a pharma CEO of a almost half a billion dollar company that's grown through some acquisitions of product and acquisitions of companies, but made a statement that they do not want to create the culture, that they don't want to be involved in defining the culture of their business. How would this CEO probably has a weak board, right? Who allows him or her to have that viewpoint because it doesn't take an MBA to know that's wrong, but who's going to tell him, right? Right. But yeah, so I've gotten a lot of interesting reactions. Like what is their job then? <laughs> if you think about it, their job is to continue to lobby and control Congress at that level. That's their job. They're so far away from the people and the customers. Right. They're into the whole political Wall Street journals, quarterly share price world. They're not part of the customer experience anymore. Or they're focused more, I think, on the technology and the chemistry of it. A yeah. couple last questions, and then I really appreciate you taking all this time with us, and then we'll wrap it up. But what comes to mind for you, Mike, when you hear the term balanced leader or balanced leadership, what do you think of when I say that? I guess just off the cuff, it would be first the leader has work-life balance, that he or she isn't sacrificing their personal life or their home life for the business as a slave working 60 hours a week and missing kids' soccer games. I'm a real believer that you've got to balance the personal life and business life. And can you operate as a human being, even when you're a leader? Right. Have oh, yeah, you been vulnerable enough with your people that they trust you to share their struggles with you? Yeah. And that's why I think when you're working with companies, especially in the middle market, what I've seen, I'm sure you've seen this as well with the pandemic, a lot of business owners were spending more time at home and they were actually getting more quality of life balance than they've ever had. A lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of owners think, okay, every hour of time I put in, I get X amount of return at 5000 or $10,000 an hour with my business. I've never and, had that thought in my life, just so you know. Right. Good for, well, and that's good for you. But I think a lot of people need to understand that it's not only the balance, it's the balance of various roles that they have. They're potentially a, a child of someone. They are the parent yeah. of someone. Yeah. They are the 
a sibling to other people and they're a part of their community and that there are other things that if they're more balanced, they'll be more effective as a business leader as well and Absolutely. as a people leader. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But easier said than done. Yeah. But I agree <laughs> that the pandemic has helped because a lot of these people that used to go be in the office 45 hours a week realize that they are just as effective, if not more, working out of their house and they can grab an hour and go watch a soccer game. So Mike, as a thought leader and as an entrepreneur and an amazing thought leader and driver, and you've started your own businesses, you've grown them, scaled them, you've learned a lot of lessons from that as we all have. We have some failures here and there that we don't like talking about. Where do you turn to for support? and assistance or soundboarding and innovation for the things that you're working on and as you're testing new theories or diverging in thinking? I've got a couple of partners in the story business, and I'm also married to a brilliant couples therapist. It's my second marriage. Right. And, oh, my God, if you really want to have a happy marriage, marry a therapist. <laughs> she, she never overreacts. Right. She stays balanced. And so it's so safe to be who I am because I'm not worried about some reactivity from another human being who's going to get angry with me. And it's fabulous. So marry a therapist. That's a really good learning here. <laughs> well, you know, as, as people look at our relationship and say, God, Mike, you're so happy. And I say, I live in an emotional growth boarding school. Wow. And we all would love to have that. And I'm on the lucky side as well, where I don't know how she survived, but 29 years of growth for us has been amazing. Two things. I just want to talk about, okay, the pandemic and we're at the endemic now. Yeah. What are the top challenges for sales and marketing as we pierce through this endemic, but we're facing this crazy, tumultuous economic upheaval, inflation, supply chain disruptions, which I think are some of the highest impacting, life-changing challenges that I've seen in my lifetime so far? What are the top challenges for sales and marketing that you see? And what are the solutions to those? Well, one is that sales and marketing typically are going like this. Marketing says, Phew, we send all these great leads to sales. They go into a black hole and you never hear anything again from them. And sales says, these leads we're getting from marketing and from the purchasing department, they've never spoken to a CEO or a CFO. So the big thing I mentioned it earlier is come up with a mutual decision or a mutual definition between marketing and sales and what a qualified lead is. And in my mind, a qualified lead is somewhat a defined buyer persona. So we know who we're trying to sell to. A CFO of an insurance company, a defined buyer persona by name is curious how we helped another CFO of another family company improve their profitability. Right. There's no salesperson in the world who will turn that lead down. So it's that we now have to teach marketing, tactical marketing. We have to teach salespeople how to initiate buy cycles with individuals 
And we have to teach marketing how to initiate buy cycles in the masses and create some demand where people pop up and say, yeah, I am curious. Because curiosity, pure curiosity, if you're selling to the enterprise, that's the seed of a new prospect. And then we have to turn that pure curiosity into pure envy with a real story, with real results and real proof. That, that speaks volumes to how people really should think about selling. It's, it sounds very simple, but it can be very complex. Yeah. It can be the most important thing that you do in leading sales. You talked about Jeffrey Moore and his curves. Are there any other public figures or people that have had a great impact on you in your career? Jim Campbell, who was my founder way back at Xerox, had a huge impact. Lately, because I'm a thought leader, right? A couple of books I've really enjoyed in sales. This one, Naked Sales, How Design Thinking. And what I got out of this book is we want to do design discovery. And I want to re-engineer the discovery model I created with solution selling, something along the lines of this. It's beautiful. Right. And this book by Andy Paul, I've been trying to take the sleeves out of selling for 40 years, and he's taking it to the next level. Both of these I thoroughly enjoyed. Those are my latest inspirational selling reads. Any other advice that you have, Mike, for owners, founders, and executives of middle market companies, whether they're growing, whether they're mature, do you want to share? Understand how your customer uses your product, your offering in their business to make money, save money, achieve goals, and solve problems. You have to understand how your customer uses your product, make it a verb, not a noun. And stop having product marketing train new salespeople because product marketing is ruining both the buying and the selling process by talking about the product as an it. It does this and it does that. We want to empower people to solve problems. Yeah. I noticed you sent me over something. You have a saying that I thought was interesting that ties into buying visions are emotional. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Hackman, my, the story I told you earlier, when I go get a new materials manager with the buying vision, yeah, they wanted to eliminate the shortages and the past due backlog and the inventory level. But what really motivated them emotionally was I don't have to work 55 hours a week anymore and I can take an afternoon off and see my kids play soccer and my stress level has gone down and my quality of life has gone up. And so when that's the emotional part of the buying vision, yeah, logically mm -hmm. I see how the software will help me eliminate shortages. But right. I'm going to have better time with my family. I'm going to work fewer hours. My CFO is going to love me. My VP of manufacturing is going to allow me. I'm going to get promoted. Right. Emotional. Yeah. My favorite used to be that you'll be very comfortable, not tied to your phone, sitting on a beach drinking mint juleps. 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but to your point, we're all parents at some point. We're mostly all parents at some point. That's great. That's very enlightening, Mike. We don't have wives outside the company. And we should have balanced lives. And so that we can be even better and more effective in each role that we take on. How can viewers get in touch with you or follow you? LinkedIn, just go to Mike Bowser. It's easy. Reach out to me. And the other thing is storyseekers.us. Storyseekers.us. Okay. That Mike, thanks for taking the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you you have some great words of wisdom and perspectives that owners really hopefully will see and hear and understand and take action on. I look forward to hearing the reaction when you spread it to your tribe. <laughs> so do we. That sounds yeah. great. I look forward to keeping in touch with you. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you for watching and listening. We really look forward to hearing from you about 1. Your thoughts on our guests and their insights. 2. Identifying speakers that you want to hear from. 3. What did you learn and take away from this event? And were you able to apply something you learned immediately back in your organizations and role as a balanced leader? You can always subscribe to get our event and guest schedule as well as access to previous programs at our website at https colon slash slash www.acrylicgroup.com slash e while there. Leave us your comments and thoughts or if you want to explore your goals, needs, and challenges, schedule a complimentary call with us. Have a great day and be a balanced leader.